Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Today we have the first podcast post-procreation. So I'm recovering from a week of sleepless nights and no more podcasting from a hospital waiting room. So back at home and really excited today. We have a special guest with us. He's the founding partner and CEO of Wyndham Capital. Mark Chrisman, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So today's going to be a fun chat. Mark's chatting with us from Boston. And if you're not familiar with Mark, we've, we've mentioned him a number of times in the blog over the years. I mean, going back probably almost 10 years now. And, and Mark's interesting because He's, on one hand, has a leg in the academic side of the world. He's written six books, over 70 articles, won a bunch of industry awards, but he's also a practitioner. So unlike a lot of academics that just kind of have their head in the clouds and you know are talking about ideas and publications that may not have any application in reality, Mark's been doing this for a long time. So Mark, why don't we get started? Give us a little background information to help listeners get some context to kind of where you are, what you're doing, and... Uh, and uh, kind of how you got there. Sure, thank you. So I, as you mentioned, I'm the uh, CEO of Wyndham Capital Management, and I'm also a professor, a finance professor at the Sloan School in MIT. And at Wyndham, we focus on tactical asset allocation as well as uh, risk premia strategies. So I've been in the business almost 40 years, and uh, I think I've been pretty lucky to have been born at a time I would enter the business when interest rates were very high. I had a huge tailwind at my back. And also, I got to know the originators of modern finance personally back when they were introducing these theories and looking for people in the industry to pay attention to them. So many of them have become good friends. I feel pretty fortunate to have arrived in the uh, field of finance when I did. Awesome. Well, so look, Mark, by the way, has his seventh book coming out this month. I highly recommend you to pre-order it. Uh, it's called The Practitioner's Guide to Asset Allocation. 
it's a pretty cool book because first of all, it's great. It has a Ford by Harry Markowitz. So anytime you got that Ford, it's a, it's a good sign. But also the, the book takes investors through really the process of asset allocation. So not going to tell you whether you need to buy the S&P tonight or tomorrow, but really how to build a portfolio and how to think about it from a practitioner's standpoint. So I figured we'd talk a little bit about the book. And, and by the way, Mark's got a lot of other great books. Um, have read a few of them in the, in the past uh, weeks and in years even, but The Puzzles of Finance, a pract- um, what's some other ones? The Portable Financial Analyst, all by Wiley, so we can commiserate about that. But let's get started. So in the book, you start out at the very basics. And it gets as wonky as you want, by the way, if you get to the appendices, etc. But let's start out with the basics. You start out say, what's an asset class? And I figured I'd let you take it from there as a, as a good starting point. So um, there are several characteristics that define an asset class. First of all, the securities within an asset class have to be relatively homogeneous. The asset classes have to be sufficiently distinct from one another. Asset classes have to offer the opportunity to improve the quality of a portfolio without depending on investor skill. And uh, asset classes also should be sufficiently large to absorb a meaningful fraction of your portfolio. So I I think those key characteristics uh, define an asset class. What's not an asset class, for example, would be hedge funds, right? Because hedge funds are not internally homogeneous. They uh, tend to invest in all different kinds of securities. And they also, it's not the case that you should expect to add value to your portfolio by picking the average hedge fund. In order for a hedge fund to benefit your portfolio, you would have to have some skill in identifying superior hedge funds. You know, it's funny, we have a, and I can't remember who to attribute this quote to, but I've heard it mentioned it so many times. I have a a friend who says hedge funds are a compensation scheme masquerading as an asset class. And and I can laugh and say that because we've we've managed plenty of private funds in the past. But I in in a world of today, particularly with seeing so many mutual funds and ETFs now that have all you know look like hedge funds as well as hedge funds that are almost just look like closet indexers, the world has become much more blurred. It it was a term that really meant something probably in the seventies, but today is kind of lost a lot of meaning. So so some asset classes, you know, we typically start from the big four, stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies. And you mentioned some, you're like, look, art's not an asset class. And so from this starting point of asset classes, what's what's basically the fundamentals of asset allocation? How does how does someone get started? Once you've identified the the universe, what's next? The way I think about asset allocation is to consider what it is investors really want. They want two things. They want to grow their wealth, and they want to avoid large drawdowns along the way. An asset allocation is something that balances those two conflicting goals, right? They're conflicting because the more you design a portfolio to increase wealth, the more you expose it to uh, drawdowns. So an an asset allocation policy is intended to provide that particular balance. Now, the typical approach for doing asset allocation is based on Harry Markowitz's seminal article in 1952 called Portfolio Selection. And what he showed, he showed that 
you can you want to diversify in an efficient way, and you need to take into account not only the risk of the different assets that you're using, but also how they co-vary together, how they either move together or diversify each other. So what, what you need to do is identify the asset classes that you're interested in, estimate their expected return. I would not advise investors to rely too much on short-term historical averages. I think uh, investors should look at either very long-term uh, returns or better yet, long-term risk premiums and add those risk premiums to the current riskless rate or come up with some fundamental approach for estimating expected returns. However, I do think it's pretty reasonable and pretty common to rely on historical measures of risk. So in addition to expected return, we have to estimate the volatility of each asset class and the correlation between the asset classes. And then what we want to do, what Harry Markowitz taught us to do, find the particular allocations that will give us the highest expected return for a given level of risk. So that we do that, and we can trace out a frontier of portfolios that satisfy that criterion. That is, that for each level of risk, and by risk we typically uh, we typically measure it as standard deviation or volatility. So we have a, if you can imagine a graph where the vertical axis is expected return and the horizontal axis is standard deviation. Thinking of going from the lower left to the upper right, you trace out a concave curve that's always upward sloping. And the portfolios that lie on that curve are the ones that offer the highest expected return for each level of risk. So that's First, well, the first step is to identify the menu, that is the asset classes. The second step is to, to construct the efficient frontier. And the third step is to pick the particular portfolio on the efficient frontier that best matches your, your preferences, your aversion to risk, for example. There's a theoretical argument for doing that, which is simply to find uh, the point of tangency between your utility function and the efficient frontier, but nobody does that in practice. That's just a uh, nice theoretical construct. So what we do in practice is we take each portfolio's expected return and standard deviation, and we convert it to a probability of experiencing a particular loss or achieving a particular gain. Most people don't really know the difference between you know, if I said, here's a portfolio that has an expected return of 5% and a standard deviation of 4%, and here's one that has an expected return of 8% and a standard deviation of 20%, that's not intuitive. But, but what I, if I were to say, this portfolio has a 5% chance of losing money on average over the next three years, this portfolio has 10% chance of losing money, then I can tell you what's the likelihood that they'll generate a certain amount of wealth, then that's much more intuitive. So that's what we do is we just simply map the return and risk of each portfolio onto statements about the likelihood of achieving certain goals or uh, failing to achieve certain goals. Portfolio that makes the most sense to us that way. So perfect. We can just end the podcast there. Simple advice. Everyone understands that. But this is really where people usually go off the rails. And and, and it seems like a pretty simple task to kind of run this through, you know, an optimizer, say, here's the particular portfolio. But most, in particular, individual investors, but also pros, tend to now kind of get into trouble here. And, and so 
you know, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been to a presentation and seen the famous study and when they start talking about asset allocation and they say, you know, 90% of the investment returns are, are due to, to due to asset allocation, the famous Brinson uh, B. Bauer study. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll kind of start to get in some more nuances and, and specifics on the asset allocation side. Yeah, so that's what, in, in the book, we include certain fallacies. We, we have chapter, several chapters that deal with a fallacy and several chapters that deal with challenges. The first fallacy is the notion that you just uh, mentioned that asset allocation determines more than 90% of investment performance. And that's based on this article that Gary Brinson and Randy Hood and Gil Bauer wrote back in 1986. They did is they examined large pension funds and they, they defined in the asset allocation policy as the average asset mix of those funds, uh, you know, of a particular fund invested in passive indexes. And then they defined uh, the market timing component of performance as uh, the return attributable to deviating from that average asset mix. And then they, the residual, what's left over, they attributed to security selection. So what they did is they regressed the total return on these pension funds on these three respective components of return. And the regression analysis showed that about 94% of total return variation through time was associated with the asset mix policy. So they therefore uh, concluded that asset allocation explains more than 90% of performance. This is a fundamentally flawed article. The flaw is as follows. There's no normal or default asset mix here, right? So it's not saying if, you know, if the, the typical asset mix might be 60-40 or it can be whatever the average is of all of these funds. And then, you know, the asset the importance of asset allocation would be how much does deviating from that average change performance. But they don't have any average. They assume that the average asset allocation is not investing at all, not even in riskless assets. So what they end up showing you is that when you incur risk, or when you invest, you you incur risk. Well, everybody sort of knows that. So what what we do in the book is we create this hypothetical world that has a stock market with only two stocks and a bond market with only two bonds, and we contrive it such that uh, stock A has the same returns as bond A, and stock B has the same returns as bond B, so that both asset classes end up having the same return. In this hypothetical world, the only possible way that you can affect performance is choosing between the two stocks and choosing between the two bonds. So it's a world in which asset allocation has no relevance whatsoever. It can't possibly affect performance because every single asset mix will have the same return. We then applied the, the uh, B. Bauer Hood, uh, or the Brinson Hood and B. Bauer um, methodology, we did the regression, and what their uh, analysis revealed is that asset allocation explained 100% of performance. So, you know, we created this hypothetical world 
in which asset allocation simply does not matter. We applied their methodology, and it showed that all of the performance was due to asset allocation. It's just, you know, an extreme toy example to uh, reveal just how silly their analysis was. It's also a good example of people just kind of reading the headlines. You see that a lot just in media in general today. People read the headlines in an article. Maybe if they are feeling particularly enterprising, they may read the abstract. But if you read a lot of papers today and spend some time thinking about but people come up with some weird conclusions. All right. So you think about asset allocation. You get your portfolio. One of the really interesting chapters, I thought, was your take on what you call time diversification and the concept where you say, look, it's widely assumed that investing over long periods is less risky than investing over short periods because people think the likelihood of loss is, is lower over long horizons. You see so many charts talking about that. Maybe talk about how you think that that may not necessarily be the case. That's another fallacy, the fallacy of time diversification. And this has really provoked a lot of debate over the years. And the, the origin is from a former colleague of mine, Paul Samuelson, at MIT. He engaged with one of his colleagues and offered his colleague a bet, whereby his colleague would be favored to win the bet. And his colleague said, you know, Paul, I realize that the odds are I'll win, but should I lose, I can't afford to lose that much money, so I don't want to do this one bet. However, if you allow me to do the bet a hundred times, I'll, I'll take you up on that. So that prompted Samuelson to write this very famous paper called The Fallacy of Large Numbers. What he showed is that, yeah, if you, if you do the bet a hundred times, you're less likely to lose on average, but the amount you potentially can lose is a hundred times as great. So it turns out that the diminishing likelihood of loss as you add more and more years to your horizon is exactly offset by the increasing amount that you can lose. So the magnitude offsets the probability. This is Samuelson's argument against time diversification, and it holds for a wide range of descriptions of how people, you know, the kinds of risk preferences that people have. Now, the reason that we are led to believe that time diversifies risk is because the probability of a particular loss does decline uh, as we add more years to our investment horizon as of the end of the horizon. But it turns out if investors care about what happens along the way, so let's say you're not so much concerned about the, the probability that you're going to lose 10% or more at the end of 20 years, you care about being down 10% at any point during that 20-year horizon, uh, that probability always goes up with time and it never goes down. And then another very simple way of seeing that time does not diversify risk is that if you want to buy a, uh, a put option to protect your portfolio, the price of that put option goes up with the time to expiration. So if it weren't the case that risk increases cumulatively over time, you wouldn't be expected or required to pay more and more money for longer dated options. You know, I think this is such an important topic because you've touched on a couple of really interesting things. One, and there's a couple of sayings that we use that go along with what you're talking about, part of which is 
your largest drawdown is always in your future. You know, and, and mathematically, that kind of has to be the case. It can't, it can't get smaller. And the challenge for most people when they build portfolios is like you mentioned, it's the, the daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, even yearly time frame challenging of, of mucking around with them. You know, the endowment style challenge of sitting through a 50% drawdown and, and all of the angst that causes people and investors and trustees and everything else. So a lot of people are rational on paper, totally irrational in the real world. And that's a big challenge we think a lot about. We wrote an article recently called the, the Forever Fund where we talked about, hey, if investors were really serious about these long time horizons, you could develop a structure that locks them up for 10 or 20 or 50 years and tell them to put their money where their mouth is. But, but historically, it, the, the path is the hardest part for people. They may understand it, but it's the most challenging. You know, in the book, we cover this a little bit. We talk about within-horizon risk. And what's not in the book is the way I got interested in this topic. I was doing some consulting years ago for a foundation, and they asked me to help them determine the asset mix that would have no more than, say, 5% chance of losing money on average over a 20-year horizon. Now, I thought for a minute, and I said, so what you're telling me is you're going to meet with your investment committee only once, and it's going to be at the end of the last day of the 20th year. And they said, no, we meet quarterly. So I said, well, wouldn't you be concerned if your portfolio is down 20% next year or the year after or at any point during that horizon? And said, yes, of course. So uh, that led us to you know, figure out the massive determining within horizon risk and also within horizon, uh, you know, within horizon probability of loss as well as within horizon value at risk. And in terms of probability of loss, what I think would surprise, actually shock a lot of people is that the likelihood of, say, a 10% loss within a five-year horizon is about 10 times as great as the likelihood of a 5% loss at the end of the five-year horizon. You know, it would be, you know, more likely than not at some point within that horizon and only about 5% as of the end. So that's just something that I think investors should keep in mind if, if they're concerned about what happens along the way. And I think most investors, whether even institutional investors, whether they're willing to admit it or not, uh, they do care about what happens along the way. That's a, that's, a, that's a good business idea for you and I. We're going to start a endowment consultancy and say, here, we'll give you an allocation you can then disband your committee and in the in the rules you're you only allowed to meet 20 years from now that'd probably be that would definitely be two-thirds of probably all the endowments out there if not more <laughs> i think it's probably. a great idea so let's let's talk a little bit of, let's get a little bit more into the weeds now so we talked about the basics you know coming up with the assets putting them into a portfolio mix Let's talk a little bit about a, a couple specifics and thoughts. And so, you know, you guys, I know, have a lot of software and do a lot of work internally where some of the assumptions as well as understanding of asset classes and everything else really can make a big difference. And, you know, one, you talked a little bit about real estate, for example, and how the optimal amount of allocating to real estate, whether you adjust for it or not adjust for it. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit, because I think it can have kind of a big takeaway on how people actually implement a portfolio, you know, because the, the assumptions have kind of big outcomes on what, what you end up investing in. Yeah, that's a good point. 
So one of the challenges in putting together a portfolio is to determine what fraction of the portfolio should be allocated to illiquid assets, real estate being a very good example, private equity is another example, some hedge funds with lockups, et cetera. And this really you know, gained a lot of uh, attention during the financial crisis because a lot of funds could not meet their uh, cash flow commitments. The, the problem is that liquidity is measured in different units than um, return and risk. Most people, when they try to figure out how to treat illiquid assets in a portfolio, do it in a very heuristic way. They might simply just, you know, assign liquidity scores and say, I want my portfolio to, ha- you know, have a, a score no greater than or no less than some threshold. It's pretty arbitrary. The other issue is that most people think that you need liquidity only to meet cash demands. It turns out that you need liquidity for lots of reasons. You need liquidity to rebalance a portfolio. You need liquidity to take advantage of new investment opportunities. You need liquidity to terminate managers who are no, no longer performing up to expectations. So there are lots of uses of liquidity. So the approach that we came up with is to treat liquidity as a shadow allocation. The way to do that is to figure out how a particular investor deploys liquidity. So a typical institutional fund, for example, will use liquidity to rebalance the portfolio. You put in place what you deem to be the optimal asset mix, prices change, and the actual asset mix now differs from what you believe to be optimal. What do you do if you want to rebalance it? So you come up with some rebalancing schedule. But to the extent uh, a large fraction of the portfolio is illiquid, then you can't fully restore the optimal weight. And there's a, you know, that lowers the quality of the portfolio. So we need some way of measuring that. Another use of liquidity is to engage in tactical asset allocation. You may feel that you have some skill in tilting your portfolio to more defensive assets during certain regimes and to more growth-oriented assets during other regimes. Well, again, if part of that portfolio is locked up in illiquid assets, you can't take advantage of that skill. And then, of course, lots of funds have uh, cash demands. Uh, pension funds have to pay out uh, benefits. Endowment funds have to contribute to the operating budget of the school. Uh, foundations have to pay a certain amount of money. And then if you invest in uh, private equity, you might have capital calls when, when the uh, investments are are uh, scheduled. So there are lots of ways you, you lose you, uh, use liquidity. So the, the way to deal with this is to estimate, either by simulation or some other process, the return and risk associated with these different uses of liquidity and then to attach a shadow asset to the liquid asset classes within your portfolio that you can move around based on these liquidity needs, and then to attach a shadow liability to that part of the portfolio that can't be uh, moved. So the way, the way I think about it is you attach a shadow asset when you're, you know, to play offense, to engage in activities that improve the quality of the portfolio, 
and you attach a shadow liability to the Ill illiquid part of the portfolio when you are playing defense, that is, you're trying to preserve the quality of the portfolio, prevent it from, um, from suffering a deterioration in its quality. So if you do that, then you, you literally introduce these shadow assets and liabilities, and you um, set their weight equal to the sum of the liquid assets, the shadow assets weight is set to the sum of the weights of the liquid assets, the shadow liabilities weight is set to the weights of the illiquid assets, and uh, you re-optimize, and what you find is that your allocation, your optimal allocation to illiquid assets will be lower and sometimes significantly lower than what you would otherwise think is optimal in the absence of taking liquidity into account. And we've also seen a lot of research and comments where particularly for individual investors or advisors, you know, private equity is an asset class, notoriously hard to do the research as well as to, you know, you have to assume you're picking top quartile managers. Otherwise you should just be in the S and P is, I mean, is it worth, is there a public markets equivalent? Do you think that it even makes sense to consider private equity and asset class for kind of individual and advisors? Is there a good substitute or should you just ignore it altogether? That's a really good question. One of the earlier studies, actually by uh, one of my colleagues at MIT, Antoinette Shore, and fellow at uh, Harvard, Josh Lerner, showed that that you did have to identify better performing private equity managers to do better than the public market. But more recent research shows that private equity on average, so if you just pick the private, the average private equity fund on average is added about 500 basis points a year to the public market on a risk equivalent basis. But it turns out, and this is not in the book, but based on some research that we've done here at Wyndham and, and uh, together with some of my colleagues at State Street, it turns out that most of the premium, the historical premium of private equity over public equity can be attributed to the sector exposures of private equity funds. So you can build a portfolio of public sector ETFs in a way that the sector exposures match the exposures of private equity funds, and that, that portfolio historically would have delivered to you 75% of the premium of private equity over public equity. So that's something that individual investors can do quite easily. I think it's also a very uh, useful portfolio for institutional investors. For anybody who invests in private equity, you, you know, most people probably realize that you commit a certain amount of capital, but that capital isn't called right away, and you have to park it somewhere. Uh, most people probably just park it in the stock market in the S&P 500. It might make more sense to invest it in a portfolio of uh, public sector ETFs or securities that are structured to match the sector exposures of private equity funds. And do you, do you recall offhand, I mean, is it like tech and healthcare, consumer discretionary? What's, what's the, the, the main allocations? Do you remember? Well, they change through time. I'm not sure off the top of my head. And I should say, I, you, know, you said we might get into the weeds here a bit. I'm not sure if I should, but you can stop me if you think I am. When I say the public sector exposures, I'm not talking about 
the sectors that private equity funds think they're in, not the accounting exposures, but rather the economic exposures. And what, what I mean by that is if you take private equity performance and you regress it on the returns of public market sectors, it's those regression coefficients that determine the sector exposure. So there, it's just to what extent do private equity funds co-vary with public sector performance? And I, off the top of my head, I don't know what the current. Well, that's it. We'll post. We're going to post some show notes, and so we'll do links to this paper as well as some other private equity papers that that kind of t- tackle this topic. And it's an interesting area to me because you know, for for the average investor, for the average advisor, one of the things that they spend most of the time thinking about certainly is asset allocation, but but the implementation, you know, the the things that are equally, if not more important. And you've talked about this and man, we've posted links to your papers on the blog years ago uh, is, is also the impact of management fees and, you know, hedge funds are often two and 20 for private equity funds, similar, and then also taxes. And so a lot of hedge funds and private equity are, are run without any regards to taxes whatsoever. So that can often have the vehicle can have a, very large impact on what you would consider to be included in a portfolio. So for both um, taxable as well as uh, tax exempt. Yeah, I, I think if you're a tax paying investor, the two most important things you can do is avoid taxes. So that's basically lower turnover and also try to um, postpone gains and realize losses, short term losses. And then the other thing is to diversify efficiently. It, you know, that's, way more important than trying to pick the manager who's going to outperform. Yeah, there's a great, and we'll post again to show notes, there's there's some great charts you have from some old papers where it breaks out, you know, index fund versus mutual fund versus hedge fund and shows just how much alpha a really active and expensive mutual fund as well as a a, a typical hedge fund with 200% turnover and 2 and 20. I mean, the hedge fund has to, on a gross basis, perform like nine percentage points higher just to get back down to a normal return for an index fund. So it's a very high bar. And a lot of people don't think about because they think of the sexiness of hedge funds and and the active management. But really, once you incorporate taxes, uh, it's a much higher bar. I I wanted to to shift into one more topic because, man, this, this hour is flying by. There's an area so so now let's let's talk a little bit about the real world and we've talked a little bit about drawdowns and the challenges of sticking to a basic portfolio once you've allocated to it and over the years you've talked a lot about um, you know what happens uh, investors care about what happens in the meantime and they care a lot more about losses and you have a concept of t- what you call turbulence and it has to be the first formula that I've ever seen inspired by human skulls. That has to be a first in finance. Maybe you talk to us a little bit about turbulence and and what that means for a portfolio. A while ago, back in the late 90s, I was trying to come up with a way of developing more reliable inputs to the portfolio construction process. So we have to input standard deviations and correlations which in combination give us the covariances. And it occurred to me that it might be that, you know, we observe returns every day. 
most of the returns we observe just reflect the fact that prices are noisy. Yet every now and then there's you know, some significant event that legitimately causes prices to change. And wouldn't it be interesting if we could somehow distinguish returns that are attributable to noise from returns that are event-driven? And I wanted to do this in a statistical way so you know, we could be more efficient about it. So my co-authors and I, at the time, developed this formula that measured how statistically unusual a, a set of returns is for a given period. So if we looked at the returns of the major asset classes yesterday, or well, not yesterday since that was Sunday, but last week, we wanted to be able to say, was that an unusual week or not? And it was unusual in a statistical sense. So what it captures, so what unusualness captures is extreme price moves. So if one or more of the asset classes had a very large positive or negative return, that would qualify that period as unusual. But also unusual interactions. So if two asset classes that are highly correlated, if they experience divergent performance, that would be statistically unusual. Or two assets that were uncorrelated and their, and their performance converged, that would be an unusual. So we came up with this formula uh, that measured statistical unusualness of a set of returns taking into account not just the size of the returns, but also how the returns interact with one another. And we uh, call that a measure of, of uh, turbulence. So it really captures instability in the markets. Now, a friend of mine, so this was in the late 1990s, a friend of mine uh, was presenting, you know, our, our paper and, you know, perhaps some uh, new empirical results that we developed based on that paper at a conference here in uh, Boston. And a gentleman in the audience raised his hand and he said to my friend, oh, that, that formula looks like the Mahalanobis distance. So, so my colleague didn't really know what the Mahalanobis distance was, but he was a pretty good marking type person. He says, oh, yes, you're exactly right. And then he, he returns to my office. He said, Mark, I was just giving this talk and this guy that, the, that our turbulence formula is the Mahalanobis distance. I said, what? And he says, Mahalanobis. I said, how do you spell it? He goes, I don't know. So we went to Google and we started typing in how we thought it would be spelled. And sure enough, Mahalanobis distance shows up. So we researched it and we found that uh, there's a statistician in India who in 1927 wrote a paper where he introduced the Mahalanobis. His name was Mahalanobis, obviously. Uh, so what he was doing, he, he was working with an archaeologist, and uh, they had a collection of skulls, of human skulls, from a particular you know, graveyard somewhere in India. And then they had another collection of skulls that they got from a, a distant battlefield, also in India. And these, uh, the people who were in the graveyard and those who died on the battlefield were of different uh, races within India. So he figured out that if he measured, you know, the height and width of the skull, the distance between the eyes, you know, any different, any way you can possibly take measurements of a skull, and, he, and then he devised this formula. He did it in such a way that if you just gave somebody the number, the distance, he could tell you whether that skull came from the graveyard or from the battlefield. So it turns out that that's the exact same math 
that we use to measure statistical unusualness in market returns, he was using it to measure, you know, to distinguish is this skull unusual from this other set, right? And and the you know the graveyard skull would be unusual if the benchmark is the battlefield and vice versa. Anyway, I thought that was a really interesting connection. And if I if I have time, I'll tell you one more connection. But let me let me go on about turbulence. So we came up with this way of measuring turbulence. What we found is it has two really important empirical properties. One is that returns to risk are much lower than when markets are turbulent than when they're calm. So if you look at the return of hedge funds, for example, and if you measure turbulence this way, if you look at say the 10% most turbulent periods the hedge fund returns are going to be much lower than they are the rest of the time. Same thing is true with stock returns, the carry trade in the currency market, small versus large and or growth versus value. Anything where you're increasing risk, it does worse when, when conditions are turbulent rather than when they're calm. So that's a big deal, and, and significantly worse, like 10, 15, 20% worse annualized. The other thing is that turbulence is persistent. It's not unlike the turbulence that we encounter when we fly. It may begin without warning, but we know if we're in the airplane that it's going to take time for the plane to pass through the weather system or to find a different altitude where it's calmer. The same is true in the financial markets. Turbulence may start without warning. It could be some geopolitical event or some economic shock. Um, but once it begins, it typically takes several weeks for, it, for investors to uh, digest and respond to what's going on. So the combination of this big difference in returns along with persistence means that investors have an opportunity to tactically adjust their portfolios when markets become turbulent. By doing so, um, they could, you know, we think that people can add value if they do it in an intelligent way. I assume 2008, 2009 was kind of the granddaddy, at least in our lifetimes, of turbulent periods. Is that right? Or is there some other periods that are, that are pretty up there? Well, that would definitely be the largest, the most turbulent. Others would be, you know, the, the 98 Russian uh, default in LTCM, you know, certainly 1987, some of the, uh, you know, recent times, the, uh, the uh, events in China. So, there, you know, there are a lot of periods. I mean, if you, if you grasp the turbulence, you'll see it lines up with all of these events. But you'll also see spikes in turbulence where there's not really any news out there, so it's capturing things that are sort of under the surface or, or not on the radar screen of what investors typically uh, have access to. And so two two comments there. One, so my assumption is that right now it tends to be pretty not that turbulent, and you can comment on that. And two is, is there a way for people or listeners to follow along or track this? Um, do you guys publish any tur- turbulence numbers or is there any, or should they just go build an Excel sheet on their own? What's, uh, what's your thoughts on both? You can use turbulence, you can use this in a couple of ways. One is to build portfolios that are more resilient to turbulence. And the way you would, so without trying to um, dynamically adjust your portfolio, if you want to build a portfolio that, is more, in my judgment, more efficiently diversified, you shouldn't worry so much about correlations that prevail during calm markets. You should worry more about the correlations that prevail during turbulent periods because it's during turbulent periods that you want to diversify against losses. 
you don't want to diversify against gains, right? And so what is that from a practical standpoint? Does that mean investors should have more in government bonds or there are other asset classes? I mean, is it like managed futures or some sort of hedging vehicles? What's the, what's the practical? It might be, uh, yes, certainly more in bonds and certainly in perhaps more in commodities. It depends on the, you know, all of the assets in the portfolio. So what you, what you should do is you should estimate your correlations and volatilities based on the, the subsamples throughout history that were turbulent and, and then, you know, use that as inputs to your optimization process. And the other thing you should do if you want to stress test a portfolio, you should stress test it based on, you know, simulations that are uh, from turbulent subsamples rather than the full, sam- full sample. So that's something that everybody can do. And, you know, at Wyndham, you know, we've developed uh, a suite of software applications and separating turbulent periods from calm periods is uh, one of the features within that software. So it's pretty easy to do. And I imagine with right now, it seems like a pretty smooth sailing period. Is 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 that showing up in the numbers as well? I, I feel like it's got to be. The VIX, I think, is closing today below 10. Right. It's, uh, this is, uh, yes, this is, it's been very calm lately. Uh, I would say that turbulence is a much better measure than VIX for measuring instability because it takes into account interactions, whereas VIX does not. Mm-hmm. But one of the other measures that we rely upon is a measure of risk concentration. And this is whereby we we do a factor analysis to determine the factors that are driving the variability of returns, and then we compute what fraction of the total variability of returns is explained or absorbed by two most important factors, and we call that the absorption ratio, and it's, been, it's now widely used throughout the world. But what, the way to think about it is the absorption, if the absorption ratio is high, in other words, if a few factors explain a large fraction of the variability of returns, but that tells us that risk is very unified, very concentrated, and when that's the state of the world, shocks travel more broadly and more quickly. And indeed, most drawdowns historically, most large drawdowns were preceded by spikes in the absorption ratio. If the absorption ratio is low, what that means is that these same few factors explain only a small fraction of the variability of returns, and what that means is that risk is distributed broadly across many different sources, and when that's the state of the world, it's relatively resilient. So that measure also currently is somewhat low, but it's been trending upward for quite a while now. It's always interesting to me, too, to think about it, because often the media and kind of geopolitical news flow doesn't necessarily line up with markets. You know, there can be times when the news flow seems crazy, and markets just kind of shrug it off, and vice versa. There's times where the news flow seems kind of chill, and markets are already like. And I kind of thinking of '07 as a good example here, where real estate had already cracked, and you're starting to see all these, you know, fissures going on, and and markets were starting to react, but the news flow hadn't really caught up. And maybe that goes to part of the the theory that markets are a leading indicator. Um, but it's interesting to to kind of have this perspective that. There are some additional metrics that, that may be useful in, in starting to look at 
at least not necessarily predictive, but warning signs on uh, when, when things are starting to get a little, a little yellow warning light. So, Mark, we only have you for a few more minutes, so I got to kind of wind up quickly here. I, I, I wish we should have blocked off two, three hours because there's so much to talk about. So, for the listeners here that listened in, we've kind of thrown a lot at them, a lot of theory, a lot of kind of ideas. What's kind of your main takeaways? If you're to give advice to an advisor, an individual on asset allocation at this point, with everything they've kind of heard today, what are what are your kind of final summary ideas from the book and just your career as, as a money manager that you think would be most useful to to our listeners? So my advice is to approach investing as scientifically as possible, which is not to say you want to just apply formulas without any any judgment, but it's to you know it's to use the math that we have, to use the data that we have in an intelligent way, to combine it with with good judgment. But I think investors, you know, should if, you know either on their own they should approach investing in a very structured, disciplined, and mathematical way, or engage with people who can provide those kinds of services. I think we need to take into account that the world, the models that we have, the asset allocation models that we have, are they're just that. They're models. They're simplifications of the real world. And we need to embrace the complexity of the real world. It's not often convenient to do that, but I think it's very important to do that. So we have to um, question the assumptions that underpin our models, the, the, a lot of these assumptions are necessary to get tractable solutions, but they're not, they're not typically or not always uh, reflective of reality. So, we, you know, I guess my main message is uh, nothing is simple. Use the science as best you can, but don't get over-reliant on models and simplifying assumptions. Put in the effort to engage with, the, you know, to embrace the complexity of the real world. I like it. So we got to wind down here, sadly. Mark, where can people find more information about you, follow your writing, follow along uh, with everything we talked about today? Where's the best places to, to find more info? WyndhamLabs.com, I, I guess, would be the uh, easiest way. Or people can just, uh, you know, Google me and send me an email if they're interested. Oh, you just invited a ocean of emails. I apologize ahead of time. Look, uh, Mark, it's been fun. So we'll add show notes, links to Wyndham, Wyndham Labs, everything else. Um, Mark, thanks so, so much for taking the time out to chat today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, check out Mark's new book, A Practitioner's Guide to Asset Allocation, out this month, as well as all of his other writings, which are a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback. Please send us questions to the mailbag at feedback at themebfabershow.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.